Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a historic deal rejected. It's disappointment. This was a compensation plan designed by First Nations people. Negotiated between Ottawa and Indigenous leadership, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal dismisses a multi-billion dollar compensation deal for First Nations people who were under care as children. The tribunal says the federal government is leaving too many people out. And coming up, we will speak to the Indigenous Services Minister. Also. We're calling for the Liberal government, for calling for Justin Trudeau to step up and provide a plan. The federal NDP leader continues to criticize the Bank of Canada's sharp focus on inflation, but is he trampling on the bank's independence? We will speak with Jagmeet Singh and... I will let the Emergency Commission manage its own witnesses. The Prime Minister avoids criticizing Ontario's Premier. Doug Ford refuses to appear before the Rouleau inquiry but can Ford keep resisting a summons about a protest and an occupation that happened in his province? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The federal government's much-touted $40 billion First Nations Child Welfare Agreement is under threat tonight. $20 billion of that amount is meant to improve in the long term the on-reserve child welfare system. The other $20 billion, well that is meant to compensate people who are discriminated by the system while in care as children. But this afternoon, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal rejected that portion of the deal, saying too many individuals were left out. Here is the reaction that we heard from the Indigenous Services Minister. It is, uh, I think, disappointing to many First Nations people that a First Nations-led, Indigenous-designed approach hasn't uh, been accepted as complete by the CHRT. There are a number of uh, folks, I'm sure, around the country, First Nations individuals, that are um, you know, wondering and worrying about when compensation might be due. And certainly, from our perspective, obviously, we're going to continue to work with uh, First Nations partners. and and um, review the, the detailed findings of the CHRT and, and move forward. Well, with more, Minister Patty Haidu joins us right now. Minister, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. So we heard right there a bit of your initial reaction to the news, but now that you've had more time to absorb it, I'm wondering if you might talk to us about how you're feeling right now with this decision. Well, I, I think it's not so much about how I'm feeling, really. It's about the reflection that I had in the lobby, which is how First Nations people are feeling, and in particular, the First Nations partners that worked so hard on proposing this agreement to the tribunal. You know, we had an, a very strong agreement in principle uh, for you know, uh, the compensation portion of uh, of this historic $40 billion settlement. And I think there are some disappointed people in the country and certainly amongst the partners that were um, negotiating collaboratively with us. For me, um, you know, now it's time for us to all contemplate what the next steps could possibly be because I think there's a deep commitment from all the parties to get to the place of a compensation regime that uh, continues to be First Nation designed and led 
and delivered in a way that uh, respects the um, autonomy and decision-making of First Nations people to do that work. Now, and again, uh, you, you mentioned it right there, but this goes to the compensation portion, less about the investment, but more about the compensation. And, and on that part, the tribunal seems to be saying that the government has not met its order to compensate all who've been affected as children. Why not just accept that decision and pay the money to the individuals that the tribunal feels is currently left out? Well, again, I'll just go back to the point that um, this compensation regime was worked on um, and led indeed by First Nations parties and really reflecting the complexity of the many different kinds of scenarios that uh, children uh, face and in, in you know and have faced in a systemically discriminatory uh, child welfare regime like the one that Canada has been party to for uh, forever really um, I think the the next steps are really trying to understand um, how we get to a space where the tribunal feels that its orders are satisfied but also continuing to respect that First Nations leadership and so I know that that work uh, we're committed to doing the government is committed to doing and my sense is that the parties are as well and so it means that we refine this agreement and we mm -hmm. look for ways to make this agreement work so that uh, that so that we can get to that that place where everyone is uh, comfortable that children who have been removed are being compensated. Well, to that, uh, Cindy Blackstock, of course, of the Caring Society, she says the decision doesn't stop the compensation for those who uh, already qualify. She says you could go ahead, pay out that money to those who are expecting it, and then uh, move forward and negotiate the rest separately. W what's your response to that? Well, we're examining the the decision, and we will be examining examining the underlying um, arguments that the tribunal has made for the summary decision. As soon as we get them, as you know, the tribunal provided a summary decision, but there's a lot of work behind that, and we'll be exploring really every scenario with partners about how best to get to that goal, which is to provide compensation for those historic harms and discrimination but also not to lose sight of the other work that is ongoing, by the way, on the child welfare reform. And so I know this is a disappointing day for many people, but I can tell you that um, from the government's perspective, we're there for the long haul. We're going to be there to make sure that uh, children who were removed from care and who suffered those historic and discriminatory um, situations and outcomes actually get the compensation to which they just that they deserve i'm quickly losing time but so i'm going to ask for a quick answer here but but again you know it the the government accepts that harm has come to to those who as children uh, experienced uh child welfare on reserve they are the, no those who are now stepping forward that the number needs to be increased why not just compensate those uh numbers in in totality instead of spending the money arguing it in court Look, this um, commitment by the federal government, this historic $40 billion commitment, it stands. There is still that money on the table. And we are, as I said, reviewing the summary decision. As soon as we have the background information from the CHRT, uh, we'll continue to review that material. And we'll work with partners to get to a solution that is indeed, uh, continues to be um, First Nations led and First Nations designed. I just want to return to that point for one moment mm -hmm. because it's so critical. You know, that 
any compensation regime is indeed designed by First Nations people who have um, the lived experience and the expertise to be able to ensure that the compensation unfolds in a way that doesn't in any way unintentionally harm people, as we've seen in previous compensation regimes. And I just want to thank those parties for, for really working so hard. I know there's a lot of disappointment today, but I think that there is a solution and we're going to find one together. Minister Haidu, thank you for the time. Thank you very much. The federal NDP leader continues to question the Bank of Canada's mandate. With another rate hike coming tomorrow, Jagmeet Singh is warning of more pain for Canadians and questioning the bank's focus on inflation. But the finance minister, Christopher Freeland, says the bank needs to be left alone to do its work. Institutional stability very much includes the independence of the Bank of Canada. Our government respects very much the independence of the Bank of Canada, and that is our position today, and it will be our position going forward. The Deputy Prime Minister from earlier today, but joining us right now is the federal NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh. Jagmeet Singh, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much. So a lot to discuss, but first, I want to get your reaction to the ruling that's come out from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal, striking that $20 billion compensation portion of the child welfare deal for First Nations children uh, who are in on-reserve care. I'm wondering if you might share your reaction to it and how you think the Trudeau government needs to respond. What we've seen from the beginning of this of this journey for, for the Indigenous communities is that they've been constantly... At a, at a blockade where the Liberal government continues to try to fight them in court, denies moving forward and listening to the tribunal decision, and then finally ultimately moves forward, but then it turns out they're discriminating against at least 13,000 kids. So what we want to see and what we've always wanted to see is this government stop fighting kids in court, listen to the tribunal's decision. This is the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. They have in, uh, extreme uh, expertise on the matter, and they have come up with a very fair conclusion. The government should implement it and not try to battle it out in court and instead work with Indigenous communities to make sure kids are not being discriminated and make sure kids are getting what they deserve. This is just one small step towards justice and the Liberal government has a responsibility to fulfill it. Now, of course, we'll keep following uh, the developments on that front, but we also want to talk about really the headlines that you've been making. And this is ahead of the Bank of Canada uh, interest rate decision tomorrow because you have been making comments about the bank. Uh, you heard what the finance minister had to say earlier, advising that the bank needs to be left alone to do its job. Do you risk stepping on the bank's independence by making the comments that you have been making? No, because I do believe that the bank as an institution should remain independent. I'm not calling for the replacement of who is the governor the way Pierre Polyev has, which is a direct undermining of the independence. But I am calling into question the federal government's role in setting the mandate, because that is within the purview of the federal government. The Liberal government sets the mandate for the Bank of Canada to implement. The problem is that mandate is too narrowly focused on just inflation, and they've included a consideration for maximum sustainable employment, but that needs to be made a more centerpiece of the mandate, because if decisions made by the Bank of Canada end up resulting in a recession where hundreds of thousands of Canadians lose their jobs, that is not acceptable in any way. And that's your concern. With each interest rate hike that we have seen, you are fearful that more Canadians will have more pain in their lives. 
Absolutely. The concern is the direct pain on families that are going to struggle to pay their mortgage. And what economists are forecasting is a very likely recession if the interest rates continue to rise. And this would be a self-inflicted recession in Canada because it would be driven by the high interest rates. That is a problem if the mandate was supposed to also include maximum sustainable employment, then the government hasn't emphasized that enough and they are responsible for making sure that the mandate is followed or that the mandate is set in a way that really responds to the needs of Canadians. And finally, the federal government has a role to play in either putting in place a plan to prevent the, uh, the recession that might occur, or if there is a recession, a plan to make sure workers aren't falling through the cracks which means to reform EI. Okay, so fiscal policy that would follow the monetary policy, but let's dig in a bit more to what you're talking about here, this maximum employment reference. What would that look like as a mandate? How would that be different than what we're seeing right now? Right now it's put into the Bank of Canada as, uh, put to the Bank of Canada as a consideration. So it's not a mandate and the problem is that is a very important consideration. It should be a part of the mandate because we've got now uh, opposing pressures. If the Bank of Canada is only focused on inflation, they only increase interest rates, and they don't look at the impact of that on Canadians, then they're not fulfilling this, this additional consideration. And I believe that the Bank of Canada uh, should, be, should be given a mandate by the government of Canada that includes looking at the impact on workers. We cannot have a scenario where the focus on inflation alone creates a recession where Canadians are ultimately worse off. That, that's not a, a tenable situation. Mm -hmm. It's also important to point out many of the other causes of inflation are not addressed by simply increasing the interest rates. Gas prices, which is a big driver of costs, is not going to be impacted by Canada changing interest rates. The cost of food won't be impacted by the Bank of Canada increasing interest rates. Those are two things that make up the inflation that we're going through. And so that's why we're calling on the government to do more. We started with the food uh, initiative where we're calling for an inquiry into food prices. We've called for their competition bureau to get involved and that's happening, which is good. And we forced the other parties to support our plan, but more needs to be done. Mr. Singh, thank you very much for the time today. Really appreciate you speaking with us. Thank you so much. The Ontario Premier continues to be scrutinized today. Doug Ford has been summoned to appear before the Rouleau Inquiry, examining the Emergencies Act, but being asked to comment on Ontario's reaction to the convoy protest. Doug Ford is fighting a summons in court, something the Prime Minister avoided commenting on today, instead referencing his own willingness to testify. I will let the Emergency Commission manage its own witnesses. Uh, for my part, I was glad to offer to go uh, as soon as we called the Commission because it was an automatic part of when you invoke the Emergencies Act, uh, you make sure that there's a public inquiry to look at why it's done and that's exactly why we called it and that's exactly why I'm looking forward to appearing. But I will say it was, uh, it was important that different orders of government were able to work together and uh, Premier Ford and I worked together well on, uh, on uh, delivering uh, a a return to normal for the citizens of Ottawa and people across the country. The Prime Minister from earlier today. But to talk about the Ontario Premier and his former Solicitor General, we are now reaching out to Robert Benzie. He is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star. Robert, good to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Nice to see you, Michael. So today was the first day back for the Ontario Legislature, but really missing in action. Don't have to tell you, we're both the Ontario Premier and his Health Minister. Uh, is there any other reason 
for those absences other than the summons, which was issued yesterday by the Rouleau inquiry? Well, clearly that's why the Premier wasn't in the House today. And uh, Michael, this is the first time that the MPPs have been back in six weeks, more than six weeks. They had a break uh, during the municipal elections here in Ontario. Uh, so we are expecting to see the premier. Now, I'm told that Sylvia Jones, the former solicitor general who was also summoned to appear, uh, she's now the health minister, she's off sick today, apparently. So that's why she's not here. Um, but the premier certainly is around because uh, my, one of my colleagues was trying to get him at a speech he was giving at the Toronto Board of Trade uh, that uh, was close to the media, as these speeches often are. No, not. <laughs> so this is uh, this is a, a very unusual um, uh, time. I mean, we haven't really seen Ford duck the media uh, like this uh, in years, literally in years, um, since the earliest times in, in office, uh, 2018, 2019, when they had a lot of problems. Um, they seem to have weathered a lot of those problems you know, they've been a big change in staffing uh, in the premier's office and the premier himself has has sort of the pandemic, I think, made him uh, more comfortable governing. Um, I think th this situation where they are going to court to, to avoid testifying uh, at the Emergencies Act inquiry is because, remember, Ford was one of the only premiers, if not the only premier, to uh, support Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's invoking of that act. Ford's government had its own emergencies legislation that uh, went into effect, and they changed some laws uh, after the uh, the Ambassador Bridge blockade in Windsor, between Windsor and Detroit. So it's very curious, and it's almost like they just don't want to set a precedent uh, of having the Premier under oath and being cross-examined because they're concerned that a lawyer might take him down a rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. But the political optics are really bad for the Tories, and it was left to government House leader Paul Calander to answer the questions, and he looked, he looked pretty unhappy having to answer these tough questions uh, today in the what? legislature and from reporters. Yeah, tough questions, as you say, and I, I am kind of wondering about what arguments we're hearing at this point, because this, this has happened in quick yeah. succession, right? Like, I mean, the commission uh, essentially issues a summon yesterday afternoon. Uh, within an hour, there's this pushback from both Ford and Jones. So in pushing back against that summons, I'm kind of wondering, what kind of argument is the Ontario government making? Instead of them appearing, what arguments are they making for not showing up? They're saying that they're cooperating by giving cabinet documents, that they have senior officials, deputy ministers and the like uh, uh, appearing. The, the an Their answer is that it's a, it's a policing matter, not a political matter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess, I mean, what we've seen from the inquiry is that Ottawa police messed up. Uh, the Ontario Provincial Police may have messed up. Uh, Ottawa Council, City Council uh, messed up. Uh, and it looks like the provincial and federal governments also messed up. So there's a lot of uh, blame to go around. So I, I assume that perhaps Ford doesn't want to be blamed. But I think this is one of these situations, Michael, where it's, you know, I don't want to say the cover up is worse than the crime, but it's wor it's almost worse for them not to show up than to just show up and take their lumps. I actually, unlike the Premier's advisors, I actually think that he would be fine on the stand because I've seen him up close uh, during the pandemic where he had to take a lot of tough questions uh, on a lot of tough issues. And he, he managed well enough that he was re-elected in June with more seats than they had uh, uh, before the election. Uh, although so there is, I, I'm, so, sorry, so you, so you have confidence in, yeah. but you know, the, there is also okay. the point, the fact that Ford, as you know, just last week said that he was not asked to testify before the commission, yeah, yeah. but apparently he was. So w that's a, another wrinkle to this. What's being said about that? Yeah. I think he's splitting hairs because remember in Canada on uh, October 17th, so uh, eight days ago, the Premier said, 
uh, I'm not being asked to 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 uh, testify, and that's not true. Uh, he was asked. Now his office says, look, he was asked to do a pre-interview for testimony, but that's not the same thing as testifying, um, because I've been hammering them on this uh, for about a week now because of what he said in in Canada. Uh, I was curious because in the summer, I remember the premier indicating that he would be quite happy to testify. And, and of course, that Canada uh, event, Trudeau was with him on the stage there at the Nokia uh, announcement about uh, research and development uh, program there. Um, and the premier said, I stood shoulder to shoulder with the prime minister. That clip went all around the country. Um, so I think I was I was I was curious that he that that. Ford is splitting hairs. Now, his office is saying he was not asked to formally testify until after he made that statement. But I think that they're, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pen kind of play here. Yeah, so you're quickly running out of time, Robert, but what are you watching out for then? Because, you know, the, the Rouleau inquiry doesn't really have much of a timeline to hear from witnesses. No, exactly. And, th and this thing is really compressed, Michael. I mean, the, the blockade took three weeks and uh, it's uh, a six-week inquiry. I, I mean, I'm, we're going to be watching for the legal fight. I actually, if I were Doug Ford, I would go to the inquiry, I would testify, and I would say, yeah, I supported the use of the Emergency Act because, it, it, as events proved, nothing was happening. It was a three-week stalemate, and we needed to, uh, the Prime Minister needed to do what he had to do. Trudeau himself is going to testify, and I actually think that Trudeau will benefit politically from this because I think if you get outside the sort of bubble of, uh, revisionist history that we're seeing right now from people saying, oh, it was heavy handed. We didn't need to do that. We already had these laws at our disposal. Well, nothing was happening. Uh, it was a log jam. And I think the residents of Ottawa uh, downtown near where you guys are right now, um, they'll, they'll testify, as some have already, that nothing was happening. And the OPP wasn't doing its job. The, the Ottawa Pol uh, Police Service wasn't doing its job. So something needed to happen. Ford at the time said the act was necessary. Mm -hmm. Trudeau said mm -hmm. it was necessary. I don't understand why Ford wouldn't just go to the to the test to testify to say to agree with what he said at the time. And we're watching. Uh, but in the meantime, Robert Benzie, always good to have you on the program. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Michael. Nice to see you. And you. Take care. Ontario's municipal elections returned some very familiar names to local office last night, among them Patrick Brown, arguably best known across the country for his bid to become federal conservative leader. He returned to local politics and last night successfully won a bid to be re-elected as mayor of Brampton in Ontario. Patrick Brown joins us now. Patrick Brown, good to see you again. Uh, congratulations on your re-election. Well, thank you very much. It's a big relief to come back to City Hall with uh, such a large mandate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's been such a crazy year for you. Uh, of course, you spent the earlier part of 2022 campaigning for the Conservative leadership. You you returned to Brampton to run for re-election. Were you at all worried that Bramptonians would not be willing to give you another term? Well, I felt confident. I knew we had a ton of support in, in Brampton. Um, you know, there was... Uh, a tremendous amount of, of goodwill. As you know, when I embarked upon um, the federal uh, scene, it was really based upon trying to extend that Brampton uh, approach on a national level. My political mentor was the late Premier Bill Davis, and who was a moderate, inclusive, progressive conservative. And I remember having many conversations with him um, about our hopes to make sure um, the Conservative Party didn't become the Republican Party of, of Canada. And so, you know, I felt I was taking his approach 
on a national level. Obviously, the party doesn't want to go that direction. And so I'm happy to be back in, in, in Brampton and happy to be in the nonpartisan arena again. And I'm going to be focusing exclusively on serving the city of Brampton. Yeah, as you say, nonpartisan, which is municipal affairs in Ontario. Now, you announced, uh, rather when you announced your run for re-election, you did talk about exploring uh, legal options around your disqualification from the Conservative race. Have you ended those explorations now? I haven't made a decision on that. Um, you know, we've, we're focused uh, entirely on um, the municipal uh, race, and so I, I guess we'll have to give some thought to that uh, now, now that it's over. And uh, now obviously, uh, they made some errors. As you know, our local integrity commissioner investigated allegations and said they were false. And, you know, I, I do hope to get a similar finding uh, from Elections Canada if they do investigate it. Does it matter to you anymore now that the Conservative leadership race has been settled, now that you are back as Mayor of Brampton? Does it matter to you anymore? <laughs> Fair point. I think one of the reasons I haven't focused on it is my focus has shifted. Um, you know, I'm focused entirely on Brampton and in the role that I am as mayor. You need to work with every political party, whether it's uh, red, uh, orange, blue, or green. Um, my goal would be to uh, work with anyone who can advance the interests of the city of Brampton. Now, you mentioned uh, Bill Davis in talking about your hopes when you did seek the, the leadership of the Conservative Party. And the man who you battled most forcefully with is Pierre Polyev, now the leader of that party. Do you still consider the federal Conservative Party your home? I think it's uh, in a different place right now. Um, I wouldn't compare it to the conservatism of, uh, of, of Bill Davis. You know, he created the first ministry of the environment. Uh, he uh, was very uh, ahead of his time on, on labor rights. Uh, much of the modern labor legislation in Ontario happened under his watch. Uh, um, so, you know, he was a different kind of conservative, and uh, um, I'm not sure the federal party is there today. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, had you won the, the conservative leadership race, uh, you'd be playing uh, a more prominent role nationally. Does that upset you in any way that instead of those national aspirations, you're, you're back at the local level? You know, I've always believed that everything happens for a reason. Um, and I've got two young children, uh, Theodore, who's three and a half, Savannah, who's one and a half. Um, it was hard uh, traveling the country, being away from them. Um, you know, that, that, that took a toll. Uh, I hated being away from my family. Um, and so it's just really nice to be home and being able to be uh, there with them every morning and every night. So now that you have a second term as Brampton mayor, uh, what are your hopes? What, what will your focus be right now? Well, I want to continue to fight for Brampton's fair share. You know, we, we don't have a university. We're one of the largest cities in the country that doesn't have a university. Um, we certainly need federal transit investment to extend our LRT. Um, so there's a number of projects that I'm that I'm working on right now um, that I'm excited to uh, continue uh, uh, executing. Mm, excited. So does that mean Brampton is where you will make your stand in terms of your contribution to, to Canada? Is this uh, where you will spend your political life now? Are, are provincial federal politics no longer your aspirations? My only interest is in the city of Brampton, um, and I look forward to making Brampton an example for others. That doesn't say if there are issues that affect Canada that I won't speak out. As you know, with Bill 21, um, Brampton led the charge against that discriminatory bill that was an attack on our foundational values as a country and religious freedom. And if, if I see uh, foundational rights being trampled upon, I'll speak out. Um, I won't limit myself to um, municipal uh, issues if I believe it's not in the best interest of Canada. Mm -hmm. But for now, Brampton is where you will be. A hundred percent. Okay. Listen, Patrick Brown, congratulations again on your win. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. 
And a closing note on last night's Ontario municipal elections. Doug Ford is the Premier of Ontario and two of his main rivals in the last provincial campaign also prevailed last night. The former Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath was elected Hamilton's first female mayor and the former Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca became mayor of the city of Vaughan. Meanwhile, in Canada's largest city, John Tory earned a third term as Toronto mayor. And in the nation's capital, Mark Sutcliffe won the race to succeed Jim Watson as mayor of Ottawa, as the city's actions are right now being examined by the public inquiry into the Emergencies Act. And that is our program for tonight. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.